Uh, this week on The Byword, we fondly remember the 90s filled with bad internet and boy bands. Okay, this is not working. Uh, this week on The Byword, we fondly remember the 2000s with the Catwoman movie and, and, and 9-11. Okay, never mind. Nostalgia. It's one heck of a drug on The Byword now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to the Nerd Byword Podcast, where much like Pepperidge Farm, we remember. This week, we are going to be talking about nostalgia, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But before that, as always, it's time for... Nerd News! All right, what have you got for nerd news this week, Chris? Well... On an episode dedicated to nostalgia, this feels like a very fitting news story. And yes, I'm claiming it for nerddom because comedy is one of my biggest nerddoms. So uh, fans have waited over 40 years, but uh, the sequel to 1981's History of the World Part 1 is finally going to be, uh, be released as a four-night event exclusively on Hulu, kicking off on March the 6th. Uh, as opposed to the 90-minute film. Um, no word yet on whether or not we get Hitler on ice, as promised, um, at the end of the first film. But when I say that this is an all-star cast, that feels like the understatement of this century. Uh, so we've got Nick Kroll, Ike Barinholtz, Wanda Sykes, uh, Mel Brooks himself leading the cast, um, Quinta Brunson, Seth Rogen is Noah, Zazie Beats, Dove Cameron, Kumail Nanjiani, Sarah Silverman, Taika Waititi, dozens more scheduled to appear. I mean, like, I could not be more excited about this. I immediately called you and to ask if you'd seen it. Uh, I'm just super, super excited about this. And, and seeing Mel Brooks attached to it still uh, at the ripe old age of however old he is, uh, it, it's, it's just fantastic to me. And one of my all-time favorite movies is finally getting its sequel. Yeah, I'm really excited for this. I hope it lives up to the uh, incredibly long wait since the first part, History of the World Part One. You know, as as somebody who you know has taught history for a long time, uh, stands as one of my all time favorites. Um, the, Mel Brooks' sense of humor, in particular, has always been really up my alley. And I think um, as much as that movie was underappreciated when it when it uh, came out, there's so much in it that has aged incredibly well and has really proven itself to be. You know, a timeless kind of a kind of humor. So I'm really, really hoping that that this lives up to the height. You know, I, I do want you know Hitler on ice and and Jews in space. If we're if we're not getting those, then obviously something's wrong. Um, but I'm just really curious to see what you know historical things they're going to be focusing on. Um, I, I could totally see us spending some time reviewing this this uh, series just because um, I, we both have you know a mad love for the original. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Dave, what is your new story this week? Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about The Batman 2, uh, what we're calling The Batman 2 anyways, for lack of a better title right now, because uh, director Matt Reeves recently sat down with uh, Collider. Uh, the subject of the interview was actually the 15th anniversary of Cloverfield. Um, however, as the you know the interview progressed, they ended up uh, talking a little bit about the sequel to The Batman. Uh, apparently, they're in the scripting and pre-production phase right now. Um, Reeves is writing the movie with uh, Mattson Tomlin, who uh, was his uh, collaborator on the first film as well. According to the report here, the director expressed excitement for what they're doing during the writing process, and he's excited to work with Robert Pattinson again. He was also uh, very direct in, in saying that villains are not going to take over this Batman franchise the way they might have the previous, which I think is probably a fair criticism. I think starting with Batman Returns, Batman kind of became uh, a supporting character in a lot of ways in his own movie. And, and each movie was more the, the, the emotional story of the villain uh, rather than of Bruce Wayne. Apparently, Reeves feels the same way and is trying to uh, avoid that. Uh, he said... Uh, my goal has always been to do these point of view stories that allow the character to always be the emotional center of the story. 
because a lot of times what happens is after you do the first one, then suddenly other rogues gallery characters come in and they kind of take over and then Batman takes a backseat sort of character-wise or emotionally. Um, he also confirmed that uh, he has had uh, several meetings scheduled with uh, now head of uh, DC Movies, uh, James Gunn, to discuss plans. Uh, and obviously there's going to be some discussion about you know how the franchise continues. Um there, there is a lot of uh, assurances flying from every corner that the, the Batman franchise is going to remain untouched by whatever larger DC plans uh, are being cooked up. Um, so we'll, we'll have to see how, how that shakes out. Um, but, you know, overall, I'm just really excited that, it, you know, we're kind of progressing in the same vein. It doesn't appear, at least right now, that there's massive studio interference or that they're making Reeves kind of mold his movie to fit into their larger plans. Um, I was a big fan of the first Batman, uh, and so I'm hoping that it just kind of continues in that same vein. What are your thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And it's interesting um, that that you mentioned Cloverfield. I remember, <laughs> I remember watching the movie and like it, but I can't tell you anything that I remember about that film other than the beheaded Statue of Liberty. But I do remember liking it. Maybe I need to revisit it. Yeah, so I'm I'm super excited to hear him say that, particularly um, the note about villains, because we're looking at you, Gotham. Um, I think far too often the villains, you know, while while they are compelling characters in their own right, but I feel like they take over the show, and and I'm glad to hear someone behind the scenes having that same sentiment. So, um, and I think I think the first Batman did a good job of introducing compelling characters, even if you want to classify uh, Selina as a rogue, so to speak, um, you know, uh, anti-hero or whatever. I think it, it was a good balance of, of screen time between all of them. And the Riddler didn't take over the show as much as I love Jim Carrey, didn't take over the show uh, as he did previously. So I'm, I'm excited to see where this goes. Um, I'm I'm interested to see um, how this develops with with the DCU for so many reasons, but uh, I guess like he has his own universe in and of itself that has nothing to do with the other part. I mean, like, so are you going to cast a new Batman for that connected universe? How all that's going to shake out is really, really intriguing to me. Yeah, and I think uh, if that's what they end up doing, having a separate Batman for their DC, uh, you know, um, connected universe plans, I think that also bodes well maybe for uh, the TV show Superman and Lois. There's been a lot of, you know, uh, speculation that when once this new um, DC universe kicks in, that Superman and Lois might go the way of the Dodo uh, in favor of the, uh, you know, the next interpretation. Um, but the the show certainly has its fans, and I think it probably would be a good thing to let that show, you know, naturally take its course. If they're willing to have two Batman, then maybe they're willing to have two Superman in this particular situation. Alrighty, folks, that's it for Nerd News. Stick around because after a quick break, we're going to be talking about nostalgia, which uh, more recent franchises have done nostalgia well and which ones are totally pooping the bed when it comes to using nostalgia. Uh, they do it poorly. They mess everything up. Uh, let's go ahead and find out after this quick break. All right, and we're back. And this week, uh, we're all about nostalgia. The good, the bad, and the ugly in this week's... So here's the plan. Chris and I both have picked a couple of franchises that we or, or products that we think do, do nostalgia right. Uh, they integrate nostalgia without letting nostalgia take over the entire product. Um, and then we also picked a couple that we think don't do a very good job integrating nostalgia. And uh, nostalgia is kind of a, a difficult topic anyways, because... Uh, Chris and I, of course, are men of a certain age at this point, and we have a lot to be nostalgic about. Um, and so it's not always easy to not rise to the nostalgia bait of a, you know, 80-year-old Indiana Jones swinging his fist around one more time. Um, so the goal here is just really to kind of discuss uh, our feelings a little bit about nostalgia and to get a sense for uh, what works nostalgia-wise and what doesn't. So, Chris, I'm very curious uh, to see you talk about your first nostalgia done right topic. 
So for many, many reasons, um, I, I love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I've made no secret about that on this show. And I, I do believe, you know, it's a complicated thing because while I say, um, you know, nostalgia can often hold us back from progression and moving stories and characters and what have you forward. I think I think that the Turtles are one of those properties that have done well. And, and even when it's not successful, um, when it doesn't pan out, they're willing to kind of grow and evolve with the times. So, I mean, it was it was uh, as I stated in our very first episode, it was one of the first things that really kind of sunk its teeth into me and and, and had me hooked from the word go. And it's never really let up. So um, I think it does a good job of still keeping like the 87 series, uh, for example, at the forefront and like having fun stuff on its social media pages with those iterations of the characters. But then always, always pushing forward, whether that's in the comic books, as we've you know, um, leaned on quite a bit on the show, but also things like Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and being willing to switch it all up, the dynamics, the relationships, the characters, all of that fun, uh, all of that stuff, just putting in a blender and just having fun with it and evolving those characters um, while still paying homage to the past. It still has Easter eggs and kind of like love letter elements to the the property's history will also just like evolving for a new generation of kids to fall in love with those characters in their own right so um there are every every iteration of the turtles i have elements that i enjoy yes even exputation yes even the bay films there are elements in there that i really really enjoy and um i'll certainly take those two that are probably the least well received for the the overall maturity of wonderful content that I've enjoyed in 34 plus years of life. Yeah, see, it's interesting because I, I wholeheartedly echo your, your whole um, attitude here when it comes to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, particularly uh, to me, the IDW series is the, really the pinnacle uh, in, in comic book nostalgia done right, uh, using, uh, you know, kind of synthesizing a whole bunch of different interpretations and versions into something that is new and fresh and not being afraid to to push the franchise forward, anchored in nostalgia, sure, but also moving forward into new directions and trying new things. I think that's absolutely fascinating uh, when it comes to the IDW series. And I'm a huge fan of that particular brand of nostalgia. It reminds me a little bit of our discussion uh, about Wakanda Forever when we had special uh, guest star Ash from X of Words on here. He used a phrase, I believe he called it additive reinterpretation or additive reinvention or something like that. And that stuck with me because I think that is probably the very best approach for nostalgic products like this when you're bringing back an old franchise and trying to reinvent it it's about not necessarily completely reinventing it but still adding something of value to that and so i think the idw series does that in spades using sort of the baseline of all these different cool ideas from various interpretations of the tmnt but then adding something to that uh, so I really, really like the IDW series in particular. I think it's probably the finest Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has been in a very, very long time, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. And you think of things. I, I think the one thing overarching in, in the IDW comics that really just makes me like stop in my tracks and I'm speechless that like, how did we not think about this before is the idea and concept of reincarnation with the turtles. Like that's so fascinating to me that these were these were four human brothers with their father centuries ago in feudal Japan and then they're re, they're reincarnated in animal form like that's just fascinating to me um and and you also look at something that was ridiculously well received and popular uh, as the last Ronin, and you look at that from the outside, and you know cynics might say, "Oh, it's the Dark Knight Rises in turtle form." But uh, as I said in the article that I wrote for it several months ago, when that that final issue was released, or at least in in preparation for it, it was like this is so much more than that, and and there's so much more depth to that uh, beneath the surface. And there's yes, that might be the jumping on point and like an intention grabber for fans of the Dark Knight Rises 
not Dark Knight Rises, Dark Knight Returns. Um, neither one are my cup of tea, but um, I, I think it, it it might grab the attention of fans of of that comic and and tell a deeper story while they've got their attention. Yeah, and that is a, again, you know, like the perfect the perfect kind of like you know additive reinvention there. You know, you take the turtles, you you put them in a very very different situation, uh, still rooted sort of in 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 some of the old interpretations, but then pushing them into a new direction. I absolutely adore that kind of stuff. And and shouts to Kevin Eastman, who is a, one of the original co creators and is involved in a lot of, if not co-writing the, the the comics themselves but at least being in the creative process and and yes um you know may not be taking up writing responsibilities and, and direct art responsibilities he does some cover work and stuff but he's still part of that process and credit to him for being willing to reinvent you know his baby that's that's fascinating to me oh yeah absolutely okay dave uh what in the seven hells is your first topic <laughs> it's very, very typical that I would kick this off with uh, video games because I have mad nostalgia for video games in particular. Uh, personal favorite is, you know, the 8-bit era of the uh, NES uh, and the Master System and then the 16-bit era of the uh, Super Nintendo and the um, uh, Genesis, I believe it was called on this side of the pond. I believe yes. we called it the Mega yes. Drive in Europe. I believe we called it the Mega Drive so in much, Europe. So. That's so much more extreme. <laughs> well, you know, it was it was the 90s, and what was more extreme than Europe? Um, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I adore those eras of video gaming. And I struggled, um, obviously, when, you know, we made the leap to 3D uh, there for a little while. I enjoyed my N64, but I also have this mad love for, you know, 2D gaming. And I'm very, very glad in recent years it's kind of made a, a comeback. And there is now a sense that just because something is 2D doesn't mean it is necessarily bad. Like the whole the whole gaming industry has shifted away from 2D equals bad, 3D equals good, which is such a simplistic uh, perception of gaming. But when we're talking about like the resurgence of old school uh, gaming, I don't think there is a finer example of nostalgia done right than Shovel Knight. So Shovel Knight is a platform video game. It was uh, published uh, and developed by Yacht Club Games. I believe a lot of the folks involved with Yacht Club may have been um, former Way Forward people. A big fan of Way Forward. Uh, they did the Shantae series, for example. Um, and so this this sucker has hit pretty much any system you can imagine the 3ds the wii u uh, it's on pc it's on linux it's on ps3 and 4 and vita and xbox one it's it's pretty much everywhere uh I, they ported it over to the switch as well um with uh you know added added campaigns and everything so there, there's all sorts of you know ways to play this thing but what it essentially is is a 2d side-scrolling platform game based on an 8-bit graphical style it doesn't look the way an NAS game looked, but it certainly looks the way we remember an NAS game looking, right? It's a little, let's say, um, embellished. It's a, a notch, you know, fancier with uh, just a little bit more detail and a little bit brighter colors. I wouldn't quite call it 16-bit style. It's definitely rooted in the 8-bit style, but it is, you know, a lot prettier. Um, but what makes it so cool is it takes elements from various uh, franchises that... Are, are we are nostalgic for uh, if you you know grew up in that gaming era, but at the same time it remixes them in such a way and adds so many cool ideas to it that uh, it just functions perfectly. So it, it, it reminds you a little bit of something like Mega Man and the way the the levels are structured. The attack uh, you have literally a knight with a shovel, hence shovel knight. The attack is very reminiscent of uh, Ducktales, the NES Ducktales game, with you having to like. Um, you know, jump and then push down. So you point the shovel downward, uh, kind of like um, the cane of uh, Scrooge McDuck and DuckTales. Um, there are special moves that are very reminiscent of something like uh, Castlevania, like um, throwing an anchor, uh, which uh, is a little bit like the Castlevania axe, right? Uh, then there's um, levels being picked from a map. That's very much something like Super Mario Brothers 3, right? This kind of map system that later Mario games would revisit as well. Um, and then, you know, there are uh, 
uh, towns, right? Uh, and and you talk to characters and stuff, and that looks a little bit like something in Zelda too, right? Not not the overhead Zelda, but like the very two D um, base Zelda, which was not horribly successful, uh, to be honest, compared to the uh, the first and the third game in the series. But so it borrows all these really cool ideas from all these very disparate. Um, franchises that that we're, we love and are familiar with if you grew up in that era of gaming. And then it remixes them into a very, very cool story with very smart level design, with very gorgeous 8-bit inspired graphics into something that feels new and fresh at the same time. It is sort of the pinnacle of retro cool in my book. Um, and I wish that more uh, people who try to do you know throwback kind of games would be this careful and deliberate in how they crib from other games and how they mix up different design elements. Because this one is just nigh perfect. If you like NES-style gaming, if you loved 8-bit gaming, this is nostalgia done right. It feels good. Um, The controls are good. And at the same time, it feels new and fresh. So uh, I'm a big, big fan of Shovel Knight. Yeah, this is why I I loved um, Shredder's Revenge, which was released this past year. Um, It takes all those things. And, you know, most of the time when you get something like this, it's a re-release or like a remaster. Like they had the Cowabunga collection, which was great and fancy and, you know, brought back all those games of our childhood. But what I like is, um, you know, Shredder's Revenge and where they took all those elements and they spun a new story out of it. And so Super Nintendo was my very first console um for the good bad and the ugly if you will of my gaming experience uh, you know being four years old and crying because i can't make mario jump but um so like the struggle was there and it kind of i, I really kind of cut my teeth on that console and so any kind of return to that in a positive sense is always gonna grab my attention all right chris that brings us to your second uh, nostalgia done right franchise what have you got Okay, so we have long made this comparison, um, and we're going to do it again. But because um, I'm saving, there, there's one big one that I'm saving for my final wrong pick, and there's a reason for it. But the other one that I think does this brilliantly is is Star Trek. I, I think you know being willing to return, and sometimes they do it a little bit too much, um, but being willing to return to that original series timeline. Uh, doing the unspeakable act of recasting iconic characters like Spock, like Kirk, like, um, you know, so many of those characters like Uhura, um, Pike and and doing it well. But then, like, as as you noted from Ash's term, additive restoration or, or, or rebirth of these characters is we're now getting characters like Michael Burnham. Um, that I guess were the in-between characters. Comics do this sometimes where they do like a throwback series and uh, comics don't really do it as well as I'd like them to or or as well as Star Trek does here. It's kind of just like, hey, let's remember when Storm had a mohawk and, you know, just stuff like that and go old designs for the characters and it it's not really executed well and it's not really adding anything to before. Um, but I think Star Trek does a great job of it. We've talked about our mad love for strange new worlds and even just revisiting older series. Like it, it just always holds up for me when it comes to Star Trek and, and I'm not, I'm not scared of the nostalgia of it. Uh, the only one that I say is kind of a, a miss for me is, is Picard and, and that's no shade to Sir Patrick Stewart. It's just, I, I don't feel comfortable uh, with with how blatant the nostalgia and just trotting back out the same old folks for uh, another farewell tour is. But other than that, I think Star Trek is really great at, at pulling off nostalgia. Yeah, I think the part of Star Trek that has probably impressed me the most about how it is linking in with nostalgia, at least so far, uh, was the first season of Strange New Worlds. I absolutely adored that show. I'm a huge fan of the original Star Trek series. I have a great fondness for uh, James T. Kirk as a character, flaws and warts and all. Uh, If we're completely honest for a second, when it comes to the great captain showdown between Kirk and Picard, Picard is who you want to be if you were out in space. Uh, But 
but James T. Kirk is infinitely more fun to watch because he's such such a more deeply flawed character. The guy who can't keep it in his pants, who's constantly womanizing everything, who trusts his gut more than he trusts logic half the time and for some reason still pulls it off. That That is a deeply flawed character that's a lot more fun to watch, uh, at least to me. And neither of them measure up to our guy, Benjamin Sisko. So. Nobody measures up to Ben Sisko. A word on that in a bit. Um, so anyways, uh, I'm a big fan of James T. Kirk. I'm a big fan of the original series, the dynamic that that series uh, established. In, and I liked it a lot better in a lot of ways than The Next Generation and still do to this day. So Strange New Worlds was an interesting experience for me as it harkens back to that more, you know, seat of your pants kind of era of Star Trek. And at the same time has to, you know, take that and bring it into more modern sensibilities of the, you know, 2020s. And it really walks that tightrope perfectly. There is a lot there that that makes you feel nostalgic for the original uh, Star Trek series. And at the same time, it manages to do lots of interesting things with the characters that ring truer for how we view uh, society and interpersonal relationships and everything uh, through a more modern lens. So Strange New Worlds, to me, is kind of the pinnacle of what you're talking about in Star Trek of just really integrating nostalgia perfectly. And my beloved uh, Lower Decks does like a great job of like being nostalgic and poking fun at the old days too. I have not watched that yet, but it is on my list. All right, Dave. Oy vey. I can't escape this one. Yeah, so I I love the Karate Kid movies, the original uh, three Karate Kids. Uh, the third one less so, but I have mad fondness for this franchise. As a kid, there was something about it that spoke to me. I thought the music was good. I thought the, the acting was fun. Uh, there was so much stuff uh, in those Karate Kid movies that spoke to me. The one that I adored the most was probably the Karate Kid Part 2. No tournament, right? No no, no, anything like that. Just straight up fish out of water with Daniel going to Okinawa with, with his... Uh, with his um, trainer there and i just absolutely adore that particular movie you know in particular so it's not surprising that i had a lot of trepidation when they announced you know cobra kai several years ago as a uh, a spin-off slash continuation so to speak of the original karate kid movies but boy oh boy i have to say uh th- they are hitting the tone just right i'm very very impressed with this um so if you're a fan of the original Karate Kid, there's a lot here for you to like. There is a lot of nostalgia, but it is woven in to the series in such a way um, that it is not the dominant reason to watch. There are many new characters. There's new relationships. Uh, there are characters that didn't really interact before that that get to interact in the series. There's a whole next generation of characters here that are interacting with you know the, the old guard it really functions on a number of levels. Now, I freely admit I'm I'm pretty far behind on this show. Uh, I think I've watched the first season and a little bit of the second. Um, I think they're like at season four or five now. But from what I've seen, it really hits that nostalgia that I have for the original uh, Karate Kid movies and at the same time adds something new and interesting and different. There's a lot of value in this show, I think. Um, and I think it's going a little underappreciated as, as far as like mass appeal. I don't think it's nearly uh, gotten the kind of respect it deserves for what it did here. So many television shows have gotten like a, a return performance, you know. Uh, God, X-Files came back for a couple more seasons, um, and that wasn't horribly successful. Will and Grace came back, and that wasn't horribly successful. We're getting ready to have a a, a sequel to uh, Kelsey Grammer's show, whatever that was called, Frasier, I think, right? So all these TV shows, old TV shows, are coming back for another round. Um, and they're not they're not quite hitting uh, the way they should. But Cobra Kai takes this, you know, 80s film franchise and it's just knocking it out of the park by by telling interesting new stories and using those old characters, adding new characters. It's not so much uh, an encore as it is a, a push in a in a in a different and new future. And I really, really appreciate it for that, Chris. See, this is this is something that missed me completely. I watched the first Karate Kid like a year ago at your behest. Uh, that's about it. My experience with the Karate Kid, other than the pop culture references, Pat Morita for me uh, was always Grandpa from the Three Ninjas movies. So uh, I, I, I missed, <laughs> yeah. I missed, I missed those. 
Karate Kid movies. Uh, you know, I was born in 88. So the heyday of Karate Kid, I think, had subsided at that point. It was probably on to the less well-received third one by the time that I was of viewing uh, capabilities. Um, so I, I never really got that one. Just also also the optics of like the white guys trying to tell us how to do martial arts was not great for me uh, in revisiting. So I don't know how, how that plays into the series. But I will say, you say it doesn't have mass appeal. Our kids love it. Our students love this show. And that's the surprising thing takeaway for me i think um mass appeal i guess uh in in our demographic um it's very surprising yeah. to me that this is not hitting stronger in our demographic because it's like particularly my demographic like i was i was a you know a kid in in the i'm an i'm an 80s kid um and so i i remember watching these movies in the 80s you know in the moment and i'm, I'm surprised that more people of my generation haven't haven't latched on to this it's it's interesting all right, Chris, so now that we've talked about stuff that uh, does uh, nostalgia right, let's go ahead and get into who does nostalgia not so right. I'm very, very interested to hear your first one because this is also something that I love a great deal and uh, have fallen away from in recent years, regrettably. Uh, professional wrestling does nostalgia very poorly. Now, what I'm not, I'm not saying, like, you know, let's, you know, watch a documentary based on the Monday Night War. No, that's not what I'm saying. Um, or perhaps revisit it in a video game. That's always fun. Um, where they get it wrong is when they trot out professional wrestlers who are not only past their prime, but they are into you know the AARP realm of their life. They should be sitting and collecting checks, <clears throat> and they should not be 62 years old having one last match five or six times you know, within a decade. So, um, and this is part of, part of the nature of the beast in the way that, that Vince McMahon in particular has set up, you know, his company, at least from the WWE's aspect where they have little to no benefits upon retirement. So they almost have to go out there and earn more money. Um, and it's just really, really sad to see. Um, but also I I've tried to get more into AEW with like the momentum that they have, and and some of that is just they're trotting out people who made their name in WWE but had a falling out for one reason or another, like Matt Hardy's coming out with the same old music with a new tag team partner. Um, it's just it doesn't recapture the same magic. And so a lot of the a lot of the stuff with professional wrestling that I like to focus on when I do watch it is the new talent and the people who have, you know, made it big within the last decade. I'm a huge Sasha Banks fan. I was crushed when they treated, mistreated her like they did on WWE. Um, I like Seth Rollins. I like these, these new wrestlers that are in their prime. Um, and I don't like having to trot out grandpa, um, just to remind us how great the old days were. Um, because it, it, it's it's not the same and it's and it's it's critically unfair to them. And so I hope that we start kind of turning the corner and these companies start taking care of their retirees rather than just having to trot them out 65, uh, you know, to get slapped around by a 40 year old. Yeah, this is a difficult one um, to quantify because there's there is a lot of moving parts here. I think the first problem we have is is that WWE has been and it's still feels weird to call them WWE even after all these years. Um, they have been the top dog now for so long that they really have not felt the need to compete, you know, to to try to innovate or push forward like they did in in the heyday of the Attitude Era when they were competing directly with with WCW. There was a lot of innovation. There was a lot of weird crap going on too. But they constantly had to push forward. They had to try new things. They had to try new gimmicks. Anything to to get people to switch the channel. You know, the Monday Night Wars were definitely good for for that. We constantly had. Uh, a push to to do something new and different. We got some great stuff out of that. You know, Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock are just, you know, the tip of the iceberg. I'm thinking, you know, Degeneration X, Triple H rose to prominence during that time. There's just a lot of good stuff that came out of that era due to competition. And although AEW looks much more like my cup of tea compared to modern WWE product, 
Um, I don't think they're nearly necessarily at the level as far as popularity goes yet to, to give WWE a run for its money. The other problem is, is the Vince McMahon of it all. Um, Here's an old man that is in a lot of ways living his own nostalgia, you know, and so he 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 still thinks he should be in the ring. You know, he still wants to be the the, the guy making all the, the day to day decisions and calls. And he is not very good at it anymore because the world has changed and his sensibilities have not. And if we're completely honest, and I know this is horrible to say, but it's the truth, um, his sensibilities were not always right to begin with. Um, he had, for example, and still has a huge um blind spot when it comes to big dudes you know he constantly wants to just push people who happen to be very tall or or, or v- very large right not necessarily even based on their wrestling talent but specifically just on their size um, and that usually led to some weird places i mean i love i love paul Wright as much as the next guy but the big show was was not a lot of fun to watch most of the time in the ring because he was not you know, first and foremost, a wrestler. He was just a, a, a big guy, you know? So there are just a lot of blind spots over WWE to begin with. Um, and and so uh, that, that company has been reliving its glory days in a lot of ways for years now. They're just constantly, um, you know, putting out their, I guess, quote-unquote, all-ages product the way they've been going these days. Um, and then every once in a while, they trot out somebody classic as a way of trying to bring some of the fans back, like myself, who have lapsed away from the product because it's not really pushing forward or innovating anymore. Um, and, and the current situation is weird, too. I don't know if you've been keeping up with this, but uh, as of recording right now, Vince McMahon is actually back with the company, uh, is back as chairman. And uh, the rumor is that he specifically came back because he wants to sell the company. He wants to, you know get rid of it and and you know have a, a, a cash out basically and the funniest uh, report that i've seen so far is that the people who own aew are looking for some additional investors to join with them and they actually would go ahead and merge wwe with aew um which you know leads us, leads us back to the same problem we have which is there's not enough competition and there's no reason to push forward and innovate uh, and that's why we keep getting 70 year old wrestlers like rick flair coming back for one more match well, that's actually what I was was going to be my retort is I think when I was watching WWE regularly when Triple H took over and Vince was took a step away, I wouldn't say that he was pushed out because it wasn't very effective, but they were making strides and the pay-per-views, you know, uh, one of the reasons I even kept a Peacock subscription is because you got to watch the pay-per-views for no additional cost. I think that's another tie-up that I struggle with AEW. As someone who's almost exclusively streaming, it's very difficult to watch. So it, it doesn't have like a contract with Hulu or with anybody like that. So um, if you're not a cable subscriber and you don't have TNT or TBS, then it's very difficult for you to watch and you're almost relegated to like highlights on social media. Um, so I think, you know, Vince trotting himself back right now, I think there's a lot of fans that are up in arms about selling to the Saudis, um, that, that, that they're, that's a, that's an uncomfortable bedfellow that the WWE has been, you know, in the past, they've done the crown jewel pay-per-view there. So that's another concern. So yeah, I'm, it's going to be interesting to watch develop, to see what they do and to see if like, if he kind of takes the, uh, the reins back from Triple H, who I, in my mind was doing a great job with creative. You know, someone who actually lived that attitude era, first and foremost, knew how to push. Because if you watch that that documentary, there were a lot of people that that made that pushed against Vince and and went uh, went against his wishes. And you know, I think I think specifically of you remember this your this is your life for the Rock with mankind. You yes. remember that one where it was his birthday? That was all unscripted between it was one of the best like Monday Night Raws we've ever had. And that Absolutely. was against that was against Vince's wishes. And that was just Foley and Johnson just riffing and going off of like doing whatever they wanted to do. That was against Vince's wishes. And so now he's coming back and taking an even more aggressive role. Who knows? Yeah, it's it's that that's a weird situation and one we'll be watching carefully. I think we'll have some nerd news fuel coming in the next few weeks about that, no no doubt. Okay, Dave, so your first nostalgia gets wrong. I I had to double check and make sure you filled that out correctly. Yeah, I'm going to catch some crap for this, but uh, you know, here we are. I don't think 
that Stranger Things does nostalgia right. Um, and that that might seem a little disingenuous coming from me because I have previously said I'm a fan of the show, and I am, uh, and I do enjoy Stranger Things to a certain extent. However, when we're when we're talking about specifically uh, the thing that they're most famous for, which is their 80s nostalgia, it rings extremely hollow. And the further the show has progressed, the more hollow it rings. Now, let me, let me quantify what I mean by this. Initially, uh, the first season of Stranger Things felt in a lot of ways like a tribute to Amblin Entertainment and early Steven Spielberg stuff. We're talking like uh, The Goonies uh, and to a much bigger extent, probably E.T. I think tonally, um, the way this feels is very E.T.-ish in the, in the first season. And that makes that makes sense to to a pretty big extent. Basically, eleven is et in this in this situation. <laughs> um, but as the show has progressed, it's become increasingly less honest. I guess is the best way to put it. It's become more of a marketing ploy. Like, let's go ahead and put put new Coke in this season, and Coca Cola can bring new Coke back as a promotional tie-in and merchandising, and that sort of thing. That sort of thing is is extremely disingenuous. The best part of the nostalgia of Stranger Things is set dressing. Visually speaking, uh, the, the entire department that is responsible for costumes and for set design are doing an amazing job. They're completely knocking it out of the park. Visual nostalgia is done extremely well, but everything else just feels slightly off. Um, and that, like that new Coke integration, or that very, very weird duet on the um, never-ending uh, story song, um, there are there are just things that happen that don't feel like they come honestly out of the characters. I guess is a is a good way to put it. And this is, I know I'm harping on on hurt feelings here again, but this is where I want to bring up um, the way too soon canceled comic book adaptation. Um, on Amazon Prime, Paper Girls, which did something very, very different, right? Because uh, Paper Girls, the only thing it really has in common with Stranger Things, although they were compared a lot, is that it starts in the 1980s. But it's a time travel story. So what it does is it takes the 1980s characters and moves them into different time periods. And so what we get is a very different kind of nostalgia, right? The nostalgia of Stranger Things is a nostalgia of the visual, right? Of the pop culture trappings. What I loved about Paper Girls is that the nostalgia there is naturally from the characters, right? Paper Girls, the characters act like 1980s kids. Whereas in Stranger Things, it just kind of looks like the 1980s. And so I think there's a lot of missteps that Stranger Things is making in, in capturing nostalgia well, uh, there are many things that happen where it just kind of takes me out of the moment and I just want to toss something like, what, did you have to do this? This is not, you know, this does not come from the characters. This is not relevant to what's going on right now. Why am I looking at this? It's just set dressing. Uh, and Stranger Things does that a lot. Yeah, as someone, I, I don't know how qualified my opinion can be to is I've never seen a single episode, but from everything peripherally, from marketing, from memes to merchandise in the stores it all just looks like they put in a 1980s instagram filter on everything um you know i don't i don't see something terribly evocative of the 1980s um you know when i was watching uh the first chapter of it i thought that that was uh nostalgia done well or a period piece done well i think well one that gets it the best is one of my all-time favorite movies, The Sandlot. You feel like you're in the 1960s. And I think Perfect, perfect, yes. I think for me, because they make it like, almost like a secondary detail of the, the movie. Like, it's focused on childhood and coming of age and baseball and this common thing that you love. And I think that's like a uniquely universally relatable thing whether you're a baseball fan or not um and the fact that it's set in the 1960s is just happenstance to to a degree i think you know it's not like it's almost like um stranger things just like look look at us we're set in the 80s and i think i think it chapter one and and the sandlot do what stranger things claims to do 
at least, you know, again, from my unqualified opinion, from the outside looking in. Yeah, and I think that's probably a fair assessment, even though it's an unqualified from the outside looking in. <laughs> um, it is, I mean, I'll probably uh, it, binge it one day. You're you're breathing down my neck about it. My daughter's breathing down my neck about it. The kids are, are kids at school. And there are undeniably good things about it. It is definitely entertaining. And there are things that it gets right, nostalgia speaking. Uh, the, the most recent season and the whole moral panic, satanic panic stuff was pretty darn spot on. You know, There are things that it gets right. But I think it sometimes just overly focuses on, on set dressing and doesn't let the nostalgia flow naturally from the characters. I guess it's the best way to put it. All right, Chris, that brings us to, oh my goodness, uh, this is going to be something. Go for it. You know, I teased this earlier when we were giving our flowers to Star Trek, but there are elements in where Star Wars does it okay, but then there's stuff where they just try to carbon copy something. Um, And I think we've talked about it ad nauseum, but, you know, it's not a nostalgic pros and cons episode if we don't talk about it. They're not willing to recast these roles, and it it just... uh, it just holds it back and there are there are there are moments where you really feel the emotional pull of the original trilogy and then sometimes they just smother you uh they they smother your face with a pillow like uh, of of nostalgia be like look look there's two sons you remember the two sons you remember the two sons you remember this song you remember this song it's like push it forward i think that the ancillary products do an okay job of it of like hearkening back to that stuff and but but the 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 standard films um are are the ones that 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 i find lacking so um you know even even the things that i love it has to be tied around the original trilogy and that's something that maybe we need to unpack too like like i love star wars rebels it's my favorite star wars ever um I, I'm I'm a Star Wars Rebels evangelist. Even Rogue One, uh, even Andor, things that I unequivocally love. We had to go back to the well of the Rebellion era to recapture that magic. And I'm just I'm just concerned about not being able to tell stories outside of that time period. And I, I don't know what to do with it because I love Star Wars with all my heart, but I want it to move forward. I think the key to moving Star Wars forward in a lot of ways is to um, is to let go, yeah, of, of the characters, you know. And I, and this is particularly difficult for me because I don't, you know, as somebody who yes, 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 love the expanded universe, I feel like I never got to really see, um, you know, my Luke Skywalker on on the big screen or even in a TV show. You know, the 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 trained Jedi who knows what he's doing and goes on adventures. You know, we get the we get the training, we get the climax of his training, and then he's an old grumpy man and everything has gone to heck. You know, so it's hard for me sometimes to let go of that in between time because I I always wanted to see that Luke Skywalker in some way, shape or form um in live action and I never got to. But I think if we're going to do something relevant and interesting with Star Wars at this point, we're going to have to move away from the Skywalkers. Uh, I think it, the, the the time is now just to do that. I think it's time to push forward and do something a little different. I really did like The Force Awakens when it came out. It was extremely nostalgic. It did feel a lot like the first Star Wars movie. I think that was by design, though, because they were trying to convince us that this is not the prequels, you know, that they can capture the tone of what, what Star Wars is, that that fun romp, you know, that can get dark, but it also can get light and have and have a sense of humor. Um, that doesn't involve somebody stepping in crap. Um, and so I, I think that nostalgia in particular worked to a certain extent. Um, but then, you know, when we get to the rise of Skywalker, it's such a reactionary nostalgia. Oh, we dare to do something different with The Last Jedi. We better go ahead and snap back into place. That whole movie comes across as incredibly disingenuous. Um, and I think there's so many missed opportunities across the sequel trilogy, period, um, that w- were missed opportunities. 
um, for a number of reasons. And I know they wanted to bring back the original actors. You know, they all were getting older. Uh, obviously, we lost Carrie Fisher in the meantime. Um, and I understand that. But now that that particular trilogy has concluded, whatever they do with Star Wars moving forward uh, on the big screen is going to have to let go of the Skywalkers. We're going to have to do something something radically different or this franchise is not going to survive. Yeah, my, my greatest hope is, and I've nerd commended them before, but I need to dive back in. It's been a while since I touched back into, but I'm very interested of the High Republic era. And I know you say, oh, we're going back, you know, but like we're, we're, we're so far back that it is new. It's just all new characters and all new stories. So yeah, Yoda's there, but um, from what I've seen, he's, he's not, he's an ancillary character. Like he's an, he's an NPC as the kids would say. Um, so I'm, I'm really intrigued by that. And if, if we do want to go in a different uncharted territory uh, when it comes to like the main cinematic release movies, then, then I'm hoping that's the direction we go or because we've already had the sequel trilogy. I don't know if we need to in between quills. I, I mean, that's what we're getting with like Mandalorian and Ahsoka and everything. So hopefully we can get something cool with that. I'm, I'm excited about that, but I, I would, I would be here for some high Republic stuff too. And even, you know, as much as we are excited for the Ahsoka series, even that is basically trading in clone wars and rebels nostalgia. I mean, that's what that basically is. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of what star Wars does is rooted in some kind of nostalgia or another these days, a whole bunch more of this on next week's episode. No, yo, yo. All right, Dave. Um, I have like I've seen a couple of these movies, uh, but you're probably far more the expert on this, so I'm interested to hear what you say. Terminator is a lot like Alien, right? The first movie is is solid and really cool and a very specific kind of movie, and then the second movie was just a huge jump in in quality as far as storytelling goes, and then everything after that was crap. And I think the problem in, with Terminator in particular is that they've spent so much time repeatedly trying to recapture uh, those first two movies. Really, the second one more than anything. Terminator 2 is sort of a hallmark. It's a, it's a cinematic touchstone in a lot of ways and by far the best movie in the franchise. But if you look, you know, Terminator 3 came out and it was trying to create another uh n- nostalgia romp right then we get uh, a terminator that was very different uh with christian bale as john connor with it actually taking place in the future um there were a lot of controversial story elements there and they had to do some reshoots and rewrites and stuff to to move away from what they had initially planned to do um and so that movie was just meddled with so much that it bombed and then they immediately go to what terminator what was it uh genesis uh Genesis with the Y, yeah, which was which was basically we're going to redo the story of Terminator One and Two, but due to time travel shenanigans, everything you knew is wrong, right? And that that didn't quite work. <laughs> In fact, it really sucked. And then we get Terminator Dark Fate, and their response to the absolute utter failure of Genesis is what. Uh, we bring back Sarah Connor because boom, nostalgia. Um, and although there were some interesting things happening in that movie, it too ultimately f- failed to to recapture the magic of the first two. And really, the ultimate problem with the Terminator franchise and the reason that we keep you know bombing and bombing and bombing every time that they try to bring the franchise back is very simple. Uh, they don't understand nostalgia. They are they try to reproduce the trappings of Terminator 2 over and over and over again rather than saying, okay, let's just tell a really good story um, and, and let's ignore nostalgia. Let's ignore trying to come up with a reason for Arnold Schwarzenegger to come back, but this time he looks old even though he's a Terminator and he should not look old. Let's just go ahead and ignore all of this stuff and just tell a really cool story in the Terminator franchise and, and let let things be. Don't worry about trying to basically reproduce almost shot for shot the first or second movie. That is really the entire problem of the Terminator franchise. They are in the loop of constantly remaking and reimagining Terminator 1 and 2. Two more than one. Um, without any real sense of forward momentum. It is basically what we've been talking about with Star Wars to the nth degree. They cannot 
move past Terminator 1 and 2. They're completely incapable of just making something new that fits within the trappings of that franchise. Um, and that's regrettable because I really like Terminator 1 and 2. And every time there's a new Terminator movie, I got my fingers crossed that they'll get it right this time. It has all the hallmarks of stuff I really like. It's a sci-fi action franchise that involves time travel. It's about as good as it gets. You know, I, it, it checks all my boxes. I love me a good action romp. I love, I love me some sci-fi. I love time travel stories when done right. And yet, for some reason, we've had more bad movies in this franchise now, four, than we've had good ones two and that's just absolutely atrocious do something new i mean that's what it comes down to it's time to do something new with the terminator franchise okay so here comes another unqualified opinion so it's funny that you compare the first two terminators to the first two alien movies because i haven't seen any of those four movies (laughs) that's shameful sir that's that's shameful game over man game over you need you need to watch these movies. I'm trying to remember now. I've seen like bits and pieces of the second one where like I just remember him in the shades and the leather jacket and like pop cultural references enough. Um, I remember, you know, I know I remember this is how long I've been teaching Spanish. I remember all the stupid hasta la vista jokes. Um, but yeah, so I think my experience with the Terminator movies, I saw the third one as a teenager when I first moved here because it had a hot girl in it. Isn't that the one with the hot girl Terminator? Uh, Terminator 3, yes. Yeah, okay. And then I remember Christian Bale doing the Christian Bale voice into an intercom. That's all I remember about. I saw that one in theaters. That's all I remember was Christian Bale, Christian Bailing. I also remember he was like hateful on set and he was like yelling at people. That was yep. that was weird. Um, and then that's it. I haven't seen any of the other ones because it looks just like the same old crap. Honestly, I, I'm not interested in seeing any of it because it just likes, oh, here's a 70 year old CGI Arnold. No, thanks. Is it possible, Chris, that maybe when we do like our, our month of horror movies in October, that we might need to do a month of sci-fi movies you haven't seen because the fact that you've not seen either the first two Alien movies and neither the first two Terminators is really, like, bugging me now, man. (laughs) (laughs) It just doesn't seem right. Or Ghostbusters. I haven't seen any of the Ghostbusters either. Or Ghostbusters, dude. I think we... Yeah, my wife is in the next room and she's yelling, what? Yeah, that was audible. Special appearance. Special appearance on the episode. (laughs) Yeah, I I was born in 88. I'm telling you, all this was was done. All of this was done. Yeah, you missed some stuff, man. We might need to do something about that. Or or or, Or Goonies, or E.T., none of that crap. Jesus. Regrettably, 80s culture is somewhat superior to 90s culture. I think that that is probably accurate. <sighs> Debatable. I was not a big, I was not big a big fan of the 90s. I, I lived those and did not like them. Anyways, uh, that's uh, our take on good and bad nostalgia. What do you think? Get on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Nerd by Word and individually that Nerd Dave and that Nerd Chris. We want to know which franchises do you think do um, nostalgia right and which ones do nostalgia wrong. Uh, and after a quick break, we're coming back with some nerd commendations. And yes, there's going to be some nostalgia, so stick around. All right, ladies and gentle nerds, we're back and it's time for uh, our favorite segment because we always save the best for last. It's time for us to recommend some new nerdy media to you in this week's All right, Chris, uh, X-Men adjacent, what else is new? We are on brand this week. Well, not in the way that you think. I'm recommending another podcast. Um, so wow, now I want to hear. Yeah, yeah. So I'm nerd commending Wolverine: The Long Night, which is a podcast by name, but it's really like Dave. You're gonna love this. It's like a return to like those old radio programs of yesteryear. Um, it's about Logan being on his own in the wilderness go figure um 
and he comes to this small town in Alaska where like there's this big family that is kind of doing some shady dealing. There's some hijinks. And so you're hearing from the perspective of these two special agents that are hunting down Logan because he's the suspect. Um, but it's like a really awesome return to, like I said, those old radio programs with like the sound effects, the music. It's really fascinating. And so um, I I got a login. My dad shared his login with me for Sirius XM. And that's, you know, like it's a serious original whatever creation so i thought it was exclusive but this is available on all podcasting platforms it's it's regular um you know apple podcast you can watch it it's written by benjamin percy who's currently writing the x-force and wolverine solo um and richard armitage if you remember the hobbit films he was thor and oakenshield he does a great job um as as wolverine so i really really dig this and it's really kind of uh, interesting is like this detective audio drama w- with like a, a, a Wolverine spin on it. Um, it's like a, you know, an episodic mystery and it kind of leaves you with a cliffhanger on every episode to where you're going to want to binge it. So I, I, as you know, as my research dictates, there are subsequent follow-up podcasts to this and there are lots more Marvel podcasts that I'm planning to check out, but Wolverine, the long night, there's like, um, a secret society kind of cult that uh, has some pull here. Like it's, it's really wild, but I really, really enjoyed it. And it's the most fun I've had with Wolverine in a while. Yeah. So I'm, I'm here for this because I have a unhealthy obsession with old time radio. I have so many old time radio episodes that I found from various sources and downloaded and got my phone all clogged up with episodes of the shadow or really any horror anthology that I could find from from old-time radio shows. You know that golden age of the radio from like the late 30s through like the early 50s? Absolutely some of my favorite stuff. And I, I for a while, went to sleep to an episode of Shadow every night. That's, that's how I went to sleep. Um, so I'm here for this. I love this type of storytelling. And I'm so glad that the rise of podcasting has you know created opportunities for that kind of storytelling to make a comeback. Yeah, it's so incredibly atmospheric. Like you feel like you're in the wilderness of Alaska, like freezing your tokus off. And like the the sound mixing is incredible with the music, with the sound effects. You really feel like you're engulfed in this in this program. It's really great. Yeah, I'm here for it, man. All right. Let's hit it. Yeah, so I, you know, I was talking uh, in my new uh, nerdier resolutions there that I was going to read more European comic books, and I have not gotten there yet because every time I sit down and I'm getting ready to read one, uh, things go horribly wrong for me because I discover something that I didn't know existed, and I must read it now. Um, and this week it was it, it was a new Star Trek series from IDW, which uh, is hitting all my uh, buttons. I just I don't know how else to put it. So here's the blurb of Star Trek. Uh, which has so far it had three issues, I believe, as of this recording. Uh, it's star date 2378, and Benjamin Sisko has finally returned from the Bajoran wormhole omnipotent, but his godhood is failing with every minute. Sent by the prophets on a mission to the deepest parts of space aboard the USS Theseus, he witnesses the unthinkable. Someone is killing the gods, and only Sisko and his motley crew of Starfleet members from every era of Trek can stop them. From Star Trek Year 5 duo Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, and illustrated by Ramon Rosanas, comes IDW's brand new flagship Star Trek ongoing series that goes where no comic has gone before. And holy crap, Ben Sisko is back. And not only do we get a really cool sequel to DS9 here, it also is going into a completely new and different direction. It feels fresh. Uh, it is so cool. Uh, it got a reinvented uh, Starfleet uniform in it that looks really cool. Sisko's characterization is spot on. We get a couple of crew members that are straight from the next generation. We've already gotten references back to uh 
the original series. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff cooking here that is going to basically become sort of the the unity point of all these different Star Trek characters and ideas. Oh, dude, you know, old man Scotty is in this as the the chief engineer because he the the ship, uh, the USS Theseus, is actually his design. You know, he, he did that whole thing where he popped up in the next generation because he was stuck in a in a transporter buffer. So he's there too. He's the, he's the chief engineer. So we literally got Scotty in engineering again. Holy smokes, dude. This series also does nostalgia right because while it has these characters from various Star Trek eras and series, it also is telling a brand new story, uh, pushing things forward. It's very, very cool. Um, in the third issue, uh, Q pops up and it has one of my favorite pages of any comic book so far this year that I've read and I've read a bunch already. Um, so they do this thing, which I think works really well here, where they kind of do um, like pages that are like from a data pad and you get to see like information from like uh, the ship's computer. It's a way for them to kind of quickly introduce ideas and concepts from other Star Trek shows so new readers aren't lost. And so when Q pops up, there is a, a data page, pad, uh, page, data pad page, that's a tongue twister, uh, that shows like um, log entries from various Star Trek captains and how they describe their interactions with Q. And it's like, you know, perfectly in character for all the characters. You know, Jean-Luc is like completely disdainful towards him. Uh, Janeway talks about how she thinks the Q are just a deeply lonely race. And then it gets to Benjamin Sisko and it's just two sentences and it says, Q came to Deep Space Nine today. I punched him in the face. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I saw the panel. I saw the panel, yeah. And that's Ben Sisko. You know, that is Ben Sisko all over. And so the characterization is spot on. Uh, it feels just really, really good to, to revisit some of these characters in, in brand new scenarios, the way it mixes things together from the various Star Trek shows. The art is beautiful, captures the likenesses very well without trying to be like photorealistic. There's a lot of artistic interpretation going on. Dude, I'm telling you, th this is absolutely spot on. And I, I cannot believe that IDW suckered me back in with the exact same strategy that they used with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is synthesizing um, uh, all of these different ideas from all of these different past interpretations into something that is new and fresh and exciting. And I can't wait for the next issue, man. It's perfect. Dude, I'm I'm so excited for this because um, I saw John, uh, Jackson Lansing's name, and I, I was like, I know I've I've seen that somewhere before. He's one of the co-writers on the new Guardians of the Galaxy series, which looks amazing. Almost made it my nerd news story, um, and it promises to be. It's solicited as like a space western, and so I'm super geeked about that series as well. But yeah, okay, only three issues. Yeah, I can binge this really quickly, man. I'm 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 so happy right now. Yeah, and it's just exciting because, you know, if this thing hits, if, you know, enough people buy this, I could see this one running for a while. And just seeing Ben Sisko back in the lead is just, man, still my favorite Star Trek captain, top to bottom. I love Ben Sisko. I'm all here for it. Alrighty, folks, that's it for a brand new episode of the Nerd by Word. If you like what you just heard, then get on your favorite podcasting platform, drop us a rating, a review, subscribe so you never miss another episode. You can find us wherever podcasts are available. Um, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Apple Podcasts, wherever their podcasts, we are there, including our very own website, nerdbyword.com. And hit us up on social media if you feel so inclined, at nerdbyword on Twitter and Instagram and Hive Social. Uh, and that nerd David, that nerd Chris individually on Twitter and Instagram and Dave's tuning along on Mastodon, but yours truly is locked out. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.